On the 19th of September 2017, the most damaging natural disaster to hit Puerto Rico made landfall. Hurricane Maria, a Category 5 storm, hit just two weeks after Hurricane Irma battered the island's power supplies. Locals abandoned their homes and rushed to emergency shelters. And tracking data showed a 20% increase in air travel off the island as people fled to their relatives in nearby countries. It's estimated 10 people died. But it's hard to know for sure, since there's still areas where electricity and phone lines are down. Hurricane Maria isn't the strongest hurricane to ever hit the island nation, but its $9 billion price tag makes it the most expensive. These days, when you think about Puerto Rico, most people see devastation. But some see opportunity. They're calling it Puertopia, a new society rising from the ashes of Hurricane Maria. And they are a group of cryptocurrency elite. Their plan for this new utopia is a society based on the blockchain. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson, and this episode I'll be asking, can the blockchain rebuild a nation after its worst ever natural disaster? Or is this a case of exploitation from some of Silicon Valley's elite? It's in these moments of where we experience our greatest loss that we have our biggest opportunity to, to sort of restart and upgrade. This is Brock Pierce, director of the Bitcoin Foundation, chatting to a journalist at a recent cryptocurrency conference in Puerto Rico. Earlier this year, Forbes named Pierce as one of the top 20 richest crypto millionaires, and he's the main instigator of the move down south. Puertopia is the name of this proposed crypto society, or at least it was until someone pointed out that in Latin it translates to Eternal Boys Playground, so they renamed it Sol. The first thing Brock wants you to know about Sol is that this crypto utopia doesn't just mean a society run on Bitcoin. Think of the blockchain as the operating system, like the app store and your iPhone, and think of Bitcoin as the first app. The operating system in this case functions as a digital list, where each new entry is built upon the one before. So for example, with Bitcoin, each new Bitcoin transaction forms a new block on the chain. Bitcoin was just the first of many applications that are being built using this technology. Using the blockchain to trade cryptocurrencies is different to sending money through a bank for one really big reason. It's decentralized. And what that really means is essentially removing a centralized point of failure or a point of control or a point of power. This is Nathan Waters. He runs a project called Purism that aims to use blockchain-based technologies to solve global problems. I guess I've been involved in crypto forever, (laughs) since like 2010. Unlike all our social, economic and political institutions we have now, blockchain doesn't rely on a central point. So with buying and selling using the Australian dollar, for example, what you're relying on there is a bank. Every time you tap to buy something using your bank card, that transaction passes through the bank before it goes to the person you're sending it to. 
Nathan says this isn't always a good thing. Because those systems, they're not resilient because the single point of failure there, if you take out that central entity in, inside a network, then the whole thing falls down. Bitcoin fans also like that this decentralization skips around things like bank fees and it makes your money harder to tax, something rich people are famously fond of avoiding. Because this digital list is visible to anyone who uses it, it's also touted as being more transparent. It's harder to do a dodgy when everyone sees you do it. But at the same time, your identity on the blockchain is encrypted, so your transactions can't be traced back to your personal identity. So when Brock Pierce says that Bitcoin is just the first app on the blockchain app store, he means that these same principles can be applied to pretty much any institution where people want to skip over a single point of power. And it's this potential that Pierce wants to harness in building a new society from the ground up. Puerto Rico can become anything it wants. But why does all this have to happen in Puerto Rico? So it is a tax haven in its own right. This is Pip Ryan, lecturer and barrister with the UTS Faculty of Law and also the founding member of the UTS Blockchain Creative Cluster. She says there's a couple of quirks that make the island particularly attractive to millionaires. You do not have to give up your American citizenship to live there. So that's where Puerto Rico stands for the group who's decided to move in there. And I guess they also feel there's something a little bit hip and cool about the weather, about its status, and it's geographically still quite close to the States. So Puerto Rico is in the Caribbean, but it's an unincorporated territory of the United States, which means it's owned by America but doesn't count towards the tally of the official 52. Even though it's administered by the states, it faces problems of its own. Even before the problems it was having last year with natural disasters, Puerto Rico had already been struggling, as are many Caribbean communities. Namely, it was facing a debt crisis, which comes alongside its companions, growing unemployment and increasing poverty. Pip says these have another roll-on effect. And so that means there are going to be cheaper alternatives for buying property and some properties abandoned and there's room to move into quite cheaply. Property prices have already dropped about 25% in the past decade and Puerto Rico is bracing itself for a wave of foreclosures as residents fail to pay back their mortgages. According to reports, crypto utopians are eyeing off huge tracts of land in the capital, San Juan. For the sceptical, buying up land when a country's economy is down looks like exploitation. But Brock Pierce is adamant he has good intentions. We're trying to bring resources here in a way that you've never seen. We want to bring jobs here in a way that's never been there, but in supporting Puerto Ricans. We are here to help, you know, all of you. So there's been talk of uh, using blockchain technology to rebuild Puerto Rico. What would that involve? Okay, so blockchain technology has two really strong features that would benefit any developing or recovering country. It's number one, if you want a community to be able to see transparently how aid funding and aid money and even private wealth is being distributed, blockchain can deliver a decentralized ledger to all of the participants 
while still protecting the anonymity, almost anonymity, so we'll call it pseudonymity, of the actors. Pseudonymity means you're not totally hidden on the blockchain. Transactions are attached to an IP address, which if you want to, you can obscure. So it's not totally anonymous, but it doesn't have your name up in lights either. Pip says this could be used to ensure aid money is getting to the right place. Because one of the problems that often happens with charitable monies is that it ends up in the hands of despots and nefarious actors who then keep it for themselves. And that's the story we've heard for the last century. So if you made a donation to a charity using blockchain technology, you could trace it to its destination. The community can see how it's being spent, whether that's bringing fresh water to a community that hasn't had any since that disaster, or whether it's making sure that children are getting back into school. The second benefit is the way the blockchain stores data. Say you use your telco to convey the information, but then you keep the ledger of the important sensitive information in a blockchain network. You're not going to bog down and slow down that blockchain network too much, but you're going to use it for a purpose that's actually very valuable. While this might seem like an abstract concern for most of us, as everything moves online, it becomes more pressing that we have a secure place to store information. With the blockchain, you can worry a lot less about who is using your data. Let's say, for example, an orphanage with children and their health data. You may be able to keep that on a blockchain network without worrying so much about whether that information is going to be misused or lost. All these benefits, however, have a catch. The blockchain is a digital ledger, which means it has a few basic requirements. Could you live in a blockchain society if you didn't have stable internet? No. <laughs> yeah, it definitely needs the internet. So again, this is another like yeah, chicken and egg problem. Like, obviously, blockchain isn't a solution to everything. You know, if people need food and they need water, you can't solve that with blockchain. Yeah, you just can't solve it. So you need to solve these those things first. Puerto Rico is currently experiencing the longest blackout in American history. And with the United States bailing out Puerto Rico's electricity power company to the tune of $300 million, the energy problem isn't a quick fix. If private individuals want to bring along their own solar units and generators and then just buy petrol, for example, to generate the generators, they're not really contributing to the local economy. Until there's a comprehensive solution to the energy crisis, it's going to be pretty hard to run a society on the blockchain. Something like Bitcoin is definitely an energy hog. As it currently stands, with Bitcoin, it takes around an hour for a transaction to be confirmed. It operates on a thing called proof of work. It involves a lot of computational effort and electricity to keep the system secure and for miners to verify transactions. Pip says that we can use less energy if we limit what we put on the blockchain. Confine to the blockchain only the information that's really sensitive or personal and only to confine to the blockchain network the currency, the cryptocurrency you're working with to secure it. But yeah, I totally agree. This is a problem and I don't know the immediate solution other than solar power. So on a practical level, wheeling in a bunch of computers isn't going to magically rebuild a country. Instead, Nathan sees this more as an opportunity to reimagine how our institutes operate. He wants people to embrace what the blockchain stands for. Imagine rather than building a top-down entity, a top-down government, and then pushing things down a hierarchical system until they eventually reach the people, it's really about reversing that and saying, OK, let's, let's build an entire society where we start on the basis of we're building things for the individual. 
Nathan sees it as a way to empower communities by leapfrogging over bureaucratic institutions where change happens slowly. But that's, that's going to be the new way forward. I think with everything we do in society is really designing for emergence. You can't have a handful of people determining these complex systems that are, that are emerging in, in our society. It kind of sounds like that's what's happening in Puerto Rico, though. You've got billionaire businessmen moving to Puerto Rico because there's not as much regulation there. Is this a form of colonialism? So, okay, so you can go from the other point of view and be like, yeah, what are these billionaire crypto nerds doing coming into this country and trying to, you know, escape taxes and things like that? In some sense, taxes are good because they pay for all the social services that we enjoy as a society, you know, schools, hospitals, roads. But at the same time, we don't trust our governments and we don't trust politicians. So in the, the whole blockchain sphere, people can foresee a future where you don't have a government and you don't have politicians but you do have governance. If they're trying to do a similar thing where they're deciding what's best for the people in a top-down approach, then it's not going to work. It's going to be the same type of, you know, it's almost like creating a new form of crypto government. They frame it as we're going down to rebuild Puerto Rico better. That's exactly what they said about Haiti and about many other countries. This is Anthony Lowenstein. I'm an independent journalist and author of the recent book Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe. Anthony is sure that there's something else going on here. The truth is if you're in a system where there's very few regulations, no tax, the land laws are very liberal, this is a classic of disaster capitalism. Anthony has been researching disaster capitalism for about 10 years now, and it's taken him all around the world. So a good example would be somewhere like Haiti. Haiti is also a close neighbour of the US. In 2010, in January of that year, there was a devastating earthquake that killed roughly two or 300,000 people. Haiti needed help, and so the US responded. You saw after that a huge influx of companies, particularly from the US, going to Haiti with the argument of saying, we're going to go and help the Haitian people. The US government at the time, the Obama administration, pledged about $10 billion US dollars to support the country. For most people, this is where the story ends. But when Anthony went to Haiti to see how they were recovering, he saw a different story unfolding. He saw that all the help that was being offered to Haiti never materialised for a lot of the population. Who did benefit were American corporations who were getting valuable contracts. Anthony says that following destructive natural disasters, there's often a second wave of devastation, this time from big business. They rarely hire their own staff. They stay there for two, three, four months, if that, then they leave. And often you've seen in Haiti, because the infrastructure is already so poor and the government itself often is very corrupt and not particularly efficient, that the people themselves who are the most suffering rarely benefit. Corporations rush into damaged areas to vie for contracts to rebuild vital infrastructure. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Electricity and water supplies need to be back online as soon as possible. But Anthony says it's what they do once they have the contracts that makes it questionable. There is a huge influx of ideology that everything should be privatised, privatising schools, water, electricity, etc. The result now, eight years after the earthquake, is that Haiti still remains the poorest country in that hemisphere. And even worse, Haiti remains a country that many in the US view as simply producing cheap clothing for Walmart and Target's. 
It happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and in Southeast Asia after the 2004 tsunami. And now Anthony says it's happening in Puerto Rico. See, the fact that they're using crypto has no impact on whether they're going to do something ethically. It makes no difference. We should be deeply, deeply sceptical. Anthony isn't the only person worried about disaster capitalism on the island. Here's the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yuling Cruz, talking to Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman. She's describing a situation five months after the hurricane. 55% more increase in the suicide rate, which tells you the mental state where people are at because of the dire situations and living conditions that we're still in. As you mentioned, 25% of the island is still without power. So we're facing a privatization uh, on the energy front. We're also facing privatization of the educational point. It almost seems like the perfect storm for disaster economics. It's unsure what role the crypto utopians will play in the privatization of Puerto Rico. We do know that a lot of major U.S. contracts awarded for the rebuild are soon to expire. And when they pull out of the country, many are unsure of what the next steps will be. Anthony says it takes a lot more than a few rich people buying property to help a nation in crisis. So often we see individuals like this or those who are simply using U.S. dollars that they are dictating what should happen in a country rather than asking what locals want. And, and I think that does go to one aspect of the white saviour complex. And there is a sense somehow that a lot of these men are under the deluded belief that they are creating good, which falls in the grand tradition of men building epic things. And so with what basis of knowledge? What are they doing to create that? Are they engaging locals? Are they asking locals what they want? So do the experts think this crypto-utopia will work? Yeah, I mean, it's being called a a crypto-utopia. Do you get optimistic when you hear this? No. (laughs) So no, no. I think it's going to be a short-lived little utopian dream for them and then dystopia will set in. If this group wants to be in Puerto Rico because they can have a better tax regime, they're, they're missing a very, very important part of what it is to organise and collect as human beings. Pip thinks that the very thing that lured the crypto millionaires to Puerto Rico is the same reason why this utopia is not going to work out. You need taxes. As Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, tax is the price we pay for living in a civilised society. Even if it's not taxes as we would pay them, Pip says you do need some kind of centralised fund. Human beings, when they organise, first of all need, you need a kitty or a petty cash fund. Everybody needs a float to work with. You can guarantee no matter who turns up, they're all going to want to know, is there fair divvies on the share of expenses in relation to what everybody's doing? Brock Pierce has actually pledged to donate $1 billion of his own wealth, the same amount Forbes thinks he's worth, into a charitable organisation to help the cause. It's a charity of his own making, and he wants to use this as the foundation stone of his crypto-utopia. This makes no sense to me. Charities since the early 1600s have had to comply with the Statute of Elizabeth, which says it must have a charitable purpose. So a charitable trust must have a purpose that's something like feeding widows and orphans, not so that you can go to a utopian crypto haven in Puerto Rico and sit around trying to trade in coins and tokens online. In fact, Brock is calling what he's doing benevolent capitalism. 
Anthony says that's a contradiction in terms. Taking aside the fancy language and use of crypto as a philosophy, strip all that away, what you still have is exactly the same issue. People who are choosing themselves to go down to a country on its knees to apparently rebuild, what experience do these people have in that? With what basis of knowledge? What are they doing to create that? And they have no experience with it at all. And that's what worries me. What do you think? Do you think we could have a crypto utopia? Um, I like the word protopia. Protopia means it improves each day. I think definitely crypto has a massive part to play in making a more equitable world. It definitely doesn't seem like it now when you look at the space. The space just seems like a complete money-grabbing, rent-seeking bubble. But there's edge cases of people actually trying to use blockchain for social good. Obviously, if you're coming in from a different country into a developing nation, you're not going to be connected with those people at all. You won't understand their problems whatsoever. Um, but you have the capital and the, the technological means to enable them to help themselves. That would be cool. That would be cool. Do you think it's likely? No. <laughs> maybe not with this group, but maybe, I don't know, maybe future groups. I don't know. It, it all depends on the individuals and what their particular ideological bents are and what they want to do. I think the whole space will be much more beautiful and flourishing if people actually started to learn how to build on it. If you can read a poem, you can write code. It's, it's not that hard. So if you just jump on and start learning, um, then you can build your own cryptocurrencies, you can build your own tokens, you can build your own registries, and you can actually literally create your own systems of, of how the world works. to Think Digital Futures. This show was supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, head to our website, 2SCR.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, leave a review. Thanks to Pip Ryan, Nathan Waters and Anthony Lowenstein for this episode. You heard music in this episode by Lee Rosevear, Blue Dot Sessions and Loyalty Freak Music. My name is Shane Anderson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>